regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. and welcome to uh, another episode of Datacast, a podcast where I have conversation with practitioners in the worlds of data science, AI, and machine learning. Today uh, with me on the line is Mark Sellers. He is the head of data engineering at Mango Solution, a UK-based data science consultancy. He has more than a decade of experience working with analytical computing environments, DevOps, and uh, Unix Linux systems. He used his experience to help Mongo's customer transform their analytic capabilities to ensure that they can make the most of their data. Uh, so welcome to the show, Mark. So so let's go back to, to your the early days of your education. Uh, I, I saw that you um, get your degree from the uh, Nottingham Trent University back in the mid-90s. So can you just tell me a bit about your uh, college experience? Yeah, so I... Uh... My see that's that's kind of an interesting part of my background, I guess, because if I go all the way back, I was at a time in my life, you know, kind of seventeen, eighteen years old, where I had to make a decision about what I wanted to do at university, and at that time, I wasn't doing a lot of computer stuff. I'd done a lot of computer stuff earlier in my life. But then I was in a bit of a computer lull at that point. So I originally enrolled at the university to do electronics. I was going to be an electronic engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the last minute, I panicked and uh, decided that that wasn't cool enough and that it would be much cooler to be a designer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, I very quickly switched courses over the course of the summer just before I was about to start. Um, the only real drawback is that as much as I love design and I love with them, I'm not actually a very good designer. <laughs> so I ended up, unfortunately, dropping out of that course altogether and then fighting my way into IT from there. So um, earlier in your career, uh, you work as a, a business support consultant for a company called Dixon Star Group. So how was your experience at that uh, first job? So that job, um, that was my first real job in IT, I guess. And what had happened is that obviously I'd dropped out of university. I didn't really know what to do with myself. I tried for a little while to get jobs doing something in design. I wasn't really sure what. And then I remembered after, you know, that I'd spent the entire duration of my degree course fixing everybody's computer problems for them and doing all their computer homework for them and all that kind of stuff uh, in the computer space. I also spent a lot of time while I was at university in the computer lab because we got better bandwidth at 3am than we did um, in the rest of the day. So it occurred to me very quickly that I'd made a bit of a mistake going into university with those kind of options that I had. And what I should have done was computer science. But of course, I couldn't really go back and do it and start again. So I um, I got a job just working in an office. That was fine for a bit. But the Dixons group um, run, uh, but they still do actually, run uh, one of the biggest computer retailers in the UK. A company called PC World, which is obviously different from the PC World magazine in the US. Um, and at the time, they had a bit of a stranglehold on the computer, on the PC market. And so I uh, I managed to get a job 
in their call center of all places, um, helping customers fix problems. And actually, that that side of the job, helping people with their problems, is the bit that's kind of stayed with me throughout the rest of my career. I see. Yeah, and, and I assume that you learn a lot about um, just just the basic of, of customer service and like understand like stepping into the customer's shoes, right? Which is really that's right. I mean, to be honest, that that job is all about empathy. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can empathize with the situation that your customer is in, even when they're wildly wrong about whatever their problem is, um, if you can empathize with your customer, then you can be successful in that role, and that's much more important even than technical ability for for those sorts of roles i I was pretty good technically as well i guess um i managed to rise up through the ranks quite well Mm -hmm. um at at that organization but for the most part it's a it's a role where you have to kind of work with people you know Mm -hmm. you're you're getting 20 30 40 phone calls a day from people with computer problems and your only job is to make them go away happy again Mm -hmm. at the end so you know. So, John, next uh, long-term job is as a um, configuration and support engineer at a company called Orange PCS. So, uh, can you discuss some of the projects that you work on um, at that company? Yeah. So, I, I, after the Dixon Stores Group thing, um, I'd met my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and we uh, we wanted to move away from where we were living at the time so we we took a year out we went traveling we went to new zealand for a year and um you know traveled around and when we came back i didn't really know what i wanted to do but what i knew that i didn't want to work in a call center again and obviously most of my skills at this point are kind of computer related skills so i applied for um a couple of jobs at this company orange pcs which is actually um, for people in the UK and Europe who know as Orange, the mobile phone company. Um, they're now a company called EE in the UK. I shouldn't change the name, but um, a very large player in the UK um, telecoms market. And I, I managed to get a job in there with almost no kind of Linux or Unix knowledge or anything like that. I managed to get a job on a support team um, that did just specialised in Unix and Linux stuff all day, every day. They, they needed somebody junior on that team. Um, but to be honest, that that work, I, you know, once I arrived, I realised that I, I absolutely loved doing that sort of stuff, at, you know, at, at that time mm-hmm. in my career. And I learned an awful lot of stuff. I worked with some really amazing people um, in that in that team, so, which is why I stuck it out. You know, I, I worked there for about seven years I think mm-hmm. um, and it was it was just amazing to be able to learn from from such kind of clever and experienced people and then while I was there actually is where I started to transition into kind of data work rather than uh, rather than kind of customer facing directly customer facing work we uh, or at some point during those seven years, it's probably about three years in. Um, Orange started using an ETL environment and it's a data manipulation environment for uh, extracting, transforming, and loading data um, made by a company called Abinitio. This is their, their software is. Uh, I assume they're still around. I haven't checked for a while actually, but their software is, uh, or at least was at the time really really powerful because it let you parallelize your kind of data processing jobs across a potentially massive cluster at the time um orange brought Abinitio in because we had uh, and this wasn't in my team but another team in the business had a 24 hour they had a, a daily job that needed to be done every single day uh, some sort of data processing thing. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but uh, the way that they were doing it originally, because the volume of data was becoming bigger and bigger and bigger over time, this process was taking longer and longer and longer, and eventually it was taking longer than 24 hours to run. Mm-hmm. Which obviously, you know, if you need that every day, that's probably not going to end well. So they brought in 
ab initio as kind of a trial initially. And uh, basically the job that they were given as, as part of that trial was to take this 24 plus hour job and get it down to something a bit more manageable. Um, and they did, they put some, they put their software in there. It's a, it's a proprietary stack, but they put that software in there and they managed to get that job down to about 30 minutes, which obviously is, you know, a significant improvement. So Orange quickly adopted this technology and the team where I was at that time um, were basically uh, looking after the dev and test versions of that technology stack. Um, I was really interested in it as a as somebody who you know kind of liked the whole Unix and Linux thing, but was also interested in the the data aspects of the work that we did. And so I spent a lot of time um, learning about it. I spent a lot of time with the team who were using it mm -hmm. and uh, working with them. And um, in the end, I ended up going on like a couple of training courses for for actually using it is it's kind of an interesting um product because i wouldn't do things this way now but it's good it had a had like a graphical dashboard where you sort of drag blocks around um and arrange your kind of processing job you know you set up your inputs you tell it what the outputs are going to be and then you can have whatever blocks in the middle that do various processing some of them can run, run in power and you've got to get them in the right order and stuff like that um, and then you can run your job but actually underneath um, most of it was um, a lot of shell scripts and a lot of kind of C and whatever else was under there um, that actually powered that stuff that made it made it work um, but that was kind of my first foot in that kind of uh, large-scale data processing kind of environment work so it was it was really interesting and as i say you know great bunch of people to learn from and to work alongside uh, in, in the next couple of years of your career you then um work as a um, principal specialist at uh, t system which is a consulting company and then uh, you got i think i saw that you got into doing some freelance work in um, it and data analytics so can you just briefly go over uh, these uh, career phases yeah, so the the move to T Systems when when you look at my CV or my LinkedIn profile or whatever, it looks like a different job, but actually it was exactly the same job as Orange PCS. What had happened is that Orange and another company called T Mobile had joined forces to create what is now known in the UK as EE, which is a mobile phone company essentially. Um, but as part of that deal, the technology side of Orange's business was outsourced to a uh, German systems integrator company, a massive uh, German company essentially called T Systems, uh, which you know is part of the kind of same group as T Mobile. So um, I was moved over there. A lot of my team either moved on or um, were let go because they were contractors and so not really needed anymore um, and in the end it got to the point where it wasn't really a kind of team and I think I might even have been the last person on the team to leave they ultimately they offered me voluntary redundancy and I was I was happy to take it so I took that money mm. uh, from my redundancy and I left and it gave me more or less a year of um, doing whatever I felt like really I uh, at the time my my children were very young at the time and so I, I spent a lot of that year just hanging out with my kids mm. um, you know having fun and running around and whatever but for to keep myself busy I wrote some software for a friend of mine who was um, he was running a department at a where they had a lot of media equipment. So they had a lot of, um, you know, video cameras and um, audio recording equipment and stuff like that. And what he was looking for but couldn't find at the time was um, a piece of software to manage all of that and then to provide kind of analytics off the back of it. So I 
took the some of the skills that I had from Bob. I was doing PHP and um, MySQL and all that kind of stuff uh, as part of some of the work that I did for Orange and T Systems. I took that knowledge and I basically built him a little web application that um, would track all the data, and it was kind of hooked into there. Um, to the university ID card so you could swipe the ID card and um, it would know what user that was and all that kind of stuff. So I wrote that software for him. It had some some cool little kind of reporting things in there, but really only stuff that you would consider to be kind of dashboards effectively, you know, no kind of predictive stuff or anything like that. Um, and not long after I finished that, I, uh, I got the job uh, at Mango. Mm-hmm where I am to this day. Just now, just looking back from that sort of one year, I guess, sabbatical of, of your career, do you think that um, it is um, helpful, like useful for you to just kind of step out of like working and then sort of like doing some, some, some stuff of your own? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I've done it twice in my career. I had... I think it must have been about 18 months off when I left Dixon's group and went traveling around New Zealand before I came back to the job at Orange. Uh, and then I did it again after Orange. Um, I took more or less a year off. Um, but to be honest, I think for me, it's worked out really, really well both times that I've done it. Um, you know, I've taken some time off. I've learned some stuff. I've recharged i've spent time with you know the people that i love and i think for me at least it, it's worked really well i've always come back to something that was in a lot of ways better than what i had before you know so when i left dixon's i was essentially working in a call center i mean i was doing business support for um uh organizations who bought computers from dixon's group business but still you know, I, I came back to a job which I would consider to be a kind of a, a, re, a really good step up from that, which is to do Linux and uh, Unix support internally for an organization where I didn't really have any particular, almost no right to be there in a lot of ways. You know, I didn't have any Linux. And then similarly, when I took that year out from, um, um, from working at Orange and T Systems back to a job um, which on paper was kind of similar to the work that I was doing at um, at Orange, but actually turned out to be very, very different, which is, I guess, how I've ended up where I am today. So mm-hmm. both times it's, it's worked really, really well. I don't know that I could say to everybody, you should always just, you know, have a year out. Also, it's not cheap to have a year out. Mm-hmm. The first was funded by the sale of my house. And then obviously, when I came back, I didn't have a house. So that was a bit <laughs> that was a bit hairy for a while. And then the second one was obviously funded by a, re- a good redundancy payout, mm-hmm. which you know not everybody's going to have access to. But for me, both of those, those breaks worked out really, really well. Um, so you've been working at Mango Solutions uh, for more than five years now. Um, for the people who are not familiar with um, Mango Solution, can you sh- uh, just give a brief background overview about the company uh, as well as the reasons that made you choose to work there? Yeah, sure. So um, Mango have been around for about, I think it's about 16 years. Um, I might be a little bit out, but it's it's about 16 years and it's still owned by the two guys that founded the company. Um, they've, you know, it, it's been a really smart move, I think, the way that they've done it. They've uh, grown the company organically. Um, there's no investor money tied up in there or anything like that. It's all, you know, kind of bootstrapped personally by the two guys that own it. Um which is a huge achievement. The company now is somewhere in the region of about, I think it's about 70 people, maybe 75 at the moment, um, across all different sectors. You know, we've got a large data science team. Um, We've got some products that we sell into the pharmaceutical industry. Um, 
things like that. And, you know, the, the work that we do is, you know, never ceases to amaze me. So I'm really kind of excited to, to continue to work uh, for this company. It's a great place to be. Mm-hmm. In um, the first two years at Mango, um, you, you st- we start out as a senior IT consultant. So uh, what, what were some of the interesting projects that you worked on back then? I think actually the, the very first project that I did was turned out to kind of define the rest of my time um, at Mango. So the very first project that I was asked to work on was uh, to help a large pharmaceutical company um, install, well, more sort of to help them with the adoption of our studio server. So at the time, um, this is, you know, six years ago. So their, um, our studio, the IDE, uh, had been around for, for a while at that point, I think. Um, and a lot of people were starting, just starting to look at our studio server. I think when I started that project, there wasn't even a commercial version at that point. I'm about my timings on that. But essentially, what I did was, um, it sounds perhaps a little bit boring, but what I did was um, help this large pharmaceutical company integrate um, our studio server into the rest of their systems that they were using. One of the big challenges that we have in getting analytics into the hands of the people who want to use it is that it's not always easy to get the tool to your organization um, because when data scientists ask for these tools, they quite often uh, are met with um, rebuttals from from their IT team. <clears throat> Excuse me. The IT team are generally just kind of imposing the will of the business on and to everybody, but they're the IT people are often kind of risk averse. They don't want new things coming into their network that may cause problems and things like that. So um, we ended up installing the, uh, we, that's not true. We wrote the documentation for installing the stuff into their specific environment. So this kind of augments the documentation that you would get for the Studio server IDE anyway, which is obviously very good to start with so we know it's good and that it is easy to integrate it into your particular IT environment and that's the first project that I worked on mm-hmm. and it took a surprisingly long time mm-hmm. um, but since then I've learned that getting any of these analytics tools into the hands of a large organization can be very very problematic so IT teams are used to working with software engineers. They're used to that kind of mode of operation that's very kind of, you know, business. But what they're not used to is working with data scientists. And what what will often happen is that people in IT will look at the work that data scientists are doing and say things like, well, there's not any testing. And, you know, this you, you've written this piece of code in the last two days, you know, where's where's the months of waterfall projects and stuff like that, and where you know where's the QA team going to get involved in this, and where's the support team and that sort of thing, because the fields are because they overlap, you know, they both use computer software, right? Yeah. But the way that, that the work of data science happens is very different to the way that the work of software engineering happens. Um, And again, you know, there's lots of overlap and things like that, but it means that the needs and drivers of those two groups aren't necessarily the same. You know, if you talk to a business and say, we want this, uh, you know, we need to know something about our future sales, whatever it may be. And the business says to you, that's great. But what we're going to need to do, we're going to need to start a software development project that's going to take, we think about six months, and then it will go to QA, and it will be in QA for two months. And then we'll start to think about delivering it, you know, after we've mitigated any bugs or anything like that. You're talking about an eight-month project, you know, 
possibly longer depending on kind of bug fixes and stuff like that but actually in the data world we want to know that stuff now right we don't want to wait we need, want that information as quickly as possible and so the drivers are very different which is not to say obviously that the stuff that comes out of data scientists should be of a lower quality it just means that the way that we approach the projects is often very different and very unfamiliar for particularly enterprise IT teams so uh, you then transition to um, a technical architectural with Marble focus on the design and deployment of um, high performance analytical computing environments. So uh, how was that transition for you? So I, I became a kind of bridge, if you like, between the data science and the IT worlds. And, uh, you know, as I say, there's a lot of there are a lot of possibilities for collaboration between those two groups, but there's also a lot of possibilities for tension and for kind of misunderstandings and things like that you know um quite often um data science teams will think that the it team are just trying to get in the way or that they're trying to slow them down or whatever when really they're just trying to make sure that everything is running properly you know that's really their their only driver so that transition to a uh, technical architect actually kind of recognized I think that the work that I'd been doing was not strictly the work that was kind of reflected by my job title at the time. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, so we, yeah, we basically, we, we changed it and I became a technical architect. But what it also allowed me to do was to, you know, have a bit more confidence in, in myself in going out to these organizations, you know, because we, one of the things that Mango also has done a lot of in the past are kind of high performance compute environments on commodity hardware. So we're talking about clusters of machines, um, which will run. Uh, so because of Mango's work in the pharmaceutical sector, um, we're often running this thing called non-mem, which is a non-linear mixed effects modeling tool. It's quite old, but it's very, very popular in the pharmaceutical sector. Um, alongside our, what I would end up doing as part of that role was a lot of kind of design and config for for those sorts of environments, you know, large-scale cluster environments, Mango's customer base. You gave a talk called an operating model for R back in a couple of uh, conferences in 2017 and essentially you were mentioning the need for an operating model to to bridge the gap between data science and IT operations which is what you just got uh, went over and more specifically like um, you mentioned the three P's of a successful operating models are policy like what to do procedure how to do it and people you know who are involved so can can you um, explain how this sort of operating model works at Mango? Yeah, so the the operating model is something that we have delivered for our clients. Mango is an, uh, an interesting company just because as a consulting company, we don't have many data projects of our own to work on. And because obviously we know the R and Python and whatever ecosystems really well, we've... Um, we've not had to kind of specifically adopt an operating model within the business ourselves, but it is something that a lot of our clients need because they don't have that kind of background, you know? So if I go out to say a global insurance company who are looking at adopting R, their IT team usually don't know anything about R. And so what we have to put in place for them because as much as anything it's about confidence you know they need the confidence in the work that the data scientists are doing to ensure that they're not going to do anything that will um, negatively impact their their networks and their other systems and all that kind of stuff you know they don't want stuff coming onto their networks you know in their production environments um that's going to cause problems for anything else. That's that's their job is to keep all that stuff safe and secure. So the operating model work essentially 
is a kind of framework for an organization to say this is the tool set and most often for for mango's customers that's R, and this is how we're going to use it so we're going to use it in these ways we're, we're not going to use it in these other ways and it's different for every organization right so some organizations will be all about um, web applications written in R using the shiny framework so that's absolutely fantastic we love doing that and it's easy to put in place a sensible operating model around that but what people need to know is who's going to maintain the software once it's released when should updates be performed for for the you know the kind of core R language and things like that because these groups these uh, and again you know I, I kind of fall back to calling them IT but it's IT really driven by the business is uh, their driver is kind of having an overarching view of the system so they're gonna they want to know things like who is responsible for this environment who needs to be contacted when things aren't perhaps running properly or something like that they need to know what to do in the event of a situation you know IT often run kind of core support teams and if you've got the CEO on the phone saying my dashboard report that somebody's made for me isn't working then you want to know how to fix that and you need to know who to go to so having the um, kind of policies and the processes in place to know who to speak to about what and when is essential for, for any business uh, at scale you know I mean I, most of our work to be honest is with very large businesses um, and it's those businesses that are more more concerned about this because it's important that all of their people understand where to go for for the right information there is actually one one missing so you got the uh, the policies the processes and the people um, for that for that particular presentation but there is another one which I talk about in that presentation but I don't isn't on the slides because I don't like uh, I don't like it be on the slides it sounds a bit negative fourth p and that fourth p is policing you need to know who is kind of in charge of making sure that the stuff that you've written in that document actually happens so if you've got data scientists pushing dashboards to production for a certain number of customers and you've written in that document we need to have a decent testing strategy and this is what the testing strategy is somebody needs to make sure that that actually happens um, and that's the policing part of of having a, a good operating model for your business so it really kind of falls into all of those categories you know you need the policies you need to know what you're going to do you need the procedures you need to know how you're going to do these things even things like and, and this is a particular particularly fun one with R because of the great package ecosystem you need to know what you're going to do with all of the packages on CRAN are you going to allow your corporate network servers on your corporate network to access CRAN and all of the 13 14,000 packages that are on it however many it is at the moment a lot of organizations will not let you do that sort of thing and so you need to have a way around that a way to allow um, those kind of packages into the organization but in a more sort of controlled way that's more suitable for for that particular business you know a lot of businesses will just let those stuff in but a lot of them won't let any of it in and then you need to work to find a, a middle ground what are some of the uh, common client projects that the company um, has received a lot of requests on that's that's really interesting, actually, because as a as a business, Mango is uh, is essentially, as I've said, a data science consultancy. And so, what we're really interested in is kind of data science work, and that's where we add the most value. So, for me, as head of data engineering, I don't get involved in a lot of our really really cool work that we do, um, but we've done stuff so that companies can detect um, 
kind of fuel leakages in oil pipelines and stuff like that. We built a thing once for a uh, for a big international coffee company to manu to so that they could get the blend of their coffee uh, kind of consistent. They uh, ingredients that come in can be quite variable. You know, the coffee beans don't necessarily taste exactly the same from two different suppliers or exactly the same for next, but their product has to taste the same. So we built a system whereby they can put in some information about the particular bean and that information is kind of turned into a specific combination for for the blend so that the blend comes out the same every time. And we get involved in really any kind of work. Um, that sort of in pursuit of that that kind of interesting data science work. The where where I come in and where the data engineering team come in is really in support of that work. Mm-hmm. So what we try and do as a data engineering team is kind of push up towards that um, that data science work so that we can add the most value that we can. Um, you know, Mango is is most well known for its data science work we've a team of i can't even remember now it's something like 35 what are some of the key challenges in delivering data science value to the clients the so where i get involved the challenges are almost always in getting something that is a really great concept into the client's production environment we can take you know, you can write all the clever code in the world um, and you can really prove your point really, really exceptionally well with, uh, you know, kind of charts and visualizations and things like that. But if you can't get that information then running kind of in a continual or a repeated basis in the company's environment, in their kind of IT environment, then actually we have a big problem. And that's really the the struggle that I try and solve. It's, it's the biggest thing I think that kind of slows us down. Um, are, are the cultural um, challenges around some of this stuff, right? It's not in the least bit difficult for me to run R in production from a technical standpoint. There are all kinds of, of great ways of running R in production. You know, we can run it in the cloud. We can run it on containers. We can do. We can do all kinds of amazing things, but if the organization itself is not willing to respond to the changes that it needs to make as a business to support these new ways of working, then actually it becomes very difficult to get that stuff running. You know, often organizations are really, really wedded to to one way of working, you know, whatever that way is. And getting them to change actually becomes this kind of broader sort of digital transformation work, but really tightly coupled to to the data. Because ultimately what we're trying to do is is deliver value for them. And, you know, whether it's saving money or making money, that's, you know, they're the areas that we're trying to impact. And when we can't do that because of some silly cultural thing, like maybe... Um, maybe a particular organization doesn't support Linux and they're only a Windows organization. Well, that's great, but that's going to cut you out from a lot of the interesting stuff that we can do for you, which only runs on Linux. So it's a lot of those kind of challenges that I I get caught up in um, and that I try and help companies to solve. So um, you have been the head of data engineering for Mongo in the past two and a half years. What do you think were some of your key accomplishments in this uh, leadership role? Wow. So um, I founded the the team. Um, so that, that was quite an accomplishment in itself. Um, I've not been personally very great at growing that team. Um, fortunately, Mango have a great team of um, of kind of support staff and things like that who work with our consultants who have helped 
that side of the business to grow, which has been really, really good to see. Um, one of the big challenges, obviously, is that whilst I am the head of data engineering, I still have client projects myself to do. And so my um, my attention, I guess, to some extent is sort of split between those things. But uh, during that time period, I mean, obviously, we've got a bunch of data engineers data engineers working for us now, which I'm really proud of. Um, they're doing excellent work. Um, and we continue to manage to land things like R into companies um, really successfully, which is really, really good to see. I mean, R, it's, you know, we do a lot of Python work as well. The data engineers that work um, for Mango in particular, you know, do some really exceptional Python work. Um, but my area of focus has always been R and getting R into organizations because I've seen the amazing things that we can do with it. And I like to be able to help, you know, play a small part in getting organizations kind of on board with it. I'm working with a, uh, a really, really large pharmaceutical company at the moment to help kind of professionalize the way that they use it. They've already got R in their business. They're using R a lot, um, but they don't necessarily know about sort of continuous integration and deployment and, you know, a lot of best practice around how to kind of, um, how to do the deployments and how to keep everything running smoothly in their infrastructure. So they're the kind of things that I'm personally most excited about getting involved in. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we've, we've done some really, really exceptional work in that area over the past number of years. And, um, you know, insurance, massive insurance companies who are now using R in production, um, you know, large pharmaceutical companies using R in production. It's just, you know, every time I see a, a piece of code running and producing some insight or, um, you know, a, a, a shiny application, um, awesome. Every time I see one of these things, it's just, it, it makes me so happy. It's, it's ridiculous. I was at the... Um, so our studio um, had a conference uh, where I spoke about running R in production a couple of weeks ago. Um, and just to see the amount of people there, you know, at the conference, I think it was something like 1,700 people, um, just really excited about R and about the things that they can do with it. It's just, it makes me very happy. Yeah, and I, I want to um, discuss that a little bit more. So um, you, you gave a talk back in 2016 at one of those R conference titled R is Production Shift. And the, from my understanding, you know, the main takeaways are like in order to use R in production, you know, you, you should approach the, the task with um, care and then uh, find sympathetic collaborators. Um, what are some of the existing challenges in the R community to, you know, uh, write production code? I think for the most part, it, there's a there's a big kind of um, big question mark that that comes up with all data science code um, about you know what is production code? What does what does what does that mean? What does it mean to have something in production? And I think to be honest, for the most part, we're thinking about the problem slightly the wrong way so i've worked on production systems now for 15 years or whatever it is um and then obviously in it for a lot longer but those production systems that i've seen i you know even in large companies i've seen production systems in inverted commas running under people's desks you know production as a word kind of doesn't really mean anything um people often think about scale when they say the word production, they say production, but they're thinking scale. Um, but to be honest, when when it comes to getting a language like R in production, the the technical challenges are, you know, there are a number of ways that you can overcome those. Whether you're just talking about best practice things like using version control um, and using kind of continuous uh, integration and deployment techniques and things like that, or maybe you use Docker containers or whatever it may be. Um, 
all of these things are great, but they're not solving the biggest problem, which is always, as I've said, this this cultural problem mm. around whether or not data scientists have the trust and confidence of the organization to be out, allowed to get code running into production. You know, people will often look. So let's take as an example, right? Mango have um, a huge number of data scientists. We've got some incredibly smart people working for us. But let's say that somebody is, um, I don't know, a PhD level astrophysicist, a fantastic data scientist, but they never learn to be a software engineer. That's not what they went to university for. That's not what they got their PhD in. So perhaps they don't know, you know, kind of version control, best practice and stuff like that. Now, Mango's team, obviously, we hire smart people. And then we make sure that they know what they're doing, which they do. They're exceptional. But in a lot of organizations, you know, it's perhaps one thing to hire somebody who's very smart. But if that person doesn't have some sort of grounding in writing code day in, day out, that is going to be run in a kind of production class system, then that might cause a problem. Now, for the most part, I find that this isn't, this isn't true. This is just a misconception that occurs because people outside of the data science community don't necessarily know that people within the data science community are pretty well aware of what kind of you know good um, good practices in terms of things like version control. But from the outside, it's very easy to look in and say, well, you know, you've written this code really, really quickly. I haven't seen anybody testing it. I haven't seen you write test documentation and stuff like that. Um, which, it, you know, whether or not that stuff is needed is kind of open for debate. There's, I almost think there's like a sliding scale of stuff, a sliding scale of kind of rigor that needs to go around a data science project where the, the bigger and more impactful a data science project is the more rigor there should be around it um, I always like to see um, code review just to make sure that the code is doing what you think it's doing it's amazing the number of times I've seen people tripped up by that they think their code is doing one thing but it's actually doing something else um, and then a, a, some sort of methodological review so I've seen people in the past in some of the organizations that I've worked with you know uh, predicting off a variable that they also don't know you know just because they run their back testing and that worked in back testing because they've got the kind of previous data but now when they're trying to predict they realize that actually they've done it wrong and they're predicting off another variable that they also don't know and so things like that are a bit of a problem but mostly it's this cultural stuff you know about accepting that these people are also to some extent software engineers but I, I think the the kind of final difficulty the final thing that I want to say about this is that there is a lot of talk about you know data science projects in production and kind of production model refreshes and stuff like that a lot of data scientists don't aren't interested in that sort of stuff they want to do the, the research and they want to do data science you know, once you flip over data science to become software engineering, it's software engineering, now it's not data science, which isn't necessarily what people are interested in. So I think there's a there's a really nice sort of split where some data scientists don't want to know that stuff, and that's fine. They shouldn't have to learn it if they don't want to, and if they're not working in that sort of an environment. You know, if you're doing kind of research or if you're writing a report or publishing a paper or something like that, it doesn't doesn't matter whether you use software engineering best practice as part of that. Um, aside from things like version control, which I think is fairly well universal now, anyway, um, you know, do you need continuous integration for your um, for your research project? Probably not. It'd probably just be a waste of time. Um, but as I say, it's it's a a sliding scale the bigger the impact the more of those sorts of things that need to be need to be added in you know whether it's a external test team who are making sure that you're doing things 
making sure that you know the results that are coming out are what you expect or um, you know whether you're training up a support team to support something like R or Python uh, in order that you don't have to get that 3 a.m. Yeah. phone call when, uh, when when something breaks. Nobody wants that, right? Mm -hmm. um, you are also the author of the book called Field Guide to the R Ecosystem, which is a nice introduction to some of the main components of the R ecosystem that uh, may be encountered in the industry. So what are some of the key developments in the R ecosystem in 2019 that you are excited about? Oh, wow. There's so much good stuff happening in, in 2019. There's People are working on some incredible things. You know, I come away from our studio conf uh, a couple of weeks ago just with so much uh, excitement for the future of R. There's... Um, and I'm really bad at remembering people's names, and I apologize for that. But um, there's a, a package called Ray Shader, which allows people to create kind of 3D objects in R um, and then shade them appropriately, um, which is amazing. I've seen some really cool animations done with that. Um, I'm not sure I'd ever need to use it myself in, in the work that I do, but you never know. Um, but, you know, the, just the, the, the kind of passion and the the lengths that people will go to and for free you know for the most part when when people are writing our packages they're almost always just given away for free some of them are absolutely astonishing um in their kind of flexibility and power but i guess i guess for me the the big things are things like um interfaces into stuff like tensorflow mm. i mean again i'm personally am not a data scientist so i not going to need to use it myself but i've built environments for people who are using r and tensorflow um and even just you know developments in things that have been around a bit longer so um r and spark is great one of the great things about r is that it's a really good um not only is it like a, a great language for for data manipulation and visualization um but it also seems to be a really good glue language for a lot of these things you know so um the uh the, um, the sparkly r package that our studio um, have written is an interface to spark but spark is all written in java as i'm sure you know but um r seems to drive it really really well from that kind of layer of abstraction because you know most data scientists don't want to learn java which is fine but having a language that you that sort of can sit on top of other things really, really well, like R can, mm. um, is super powerful, super powerful for the for the community. For sure. Um, can you uh, give a very quick overview of the uh, pros and cons of uh, some of the most popular uh, big data and analytics tools that um, a data engineer need to be familiar with? Wow. So I think the interesting thing that's happened in the industry um, over the last probably, it's, it's been going on longer, but it's accelerated a lot in the last sort of two or three years, is the move to um, away from kind of on-prem Hadoop sort of systems to, uh, to cloud-based processing. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the big thing that's changing a lot of stuff in that space is actually um, blob storage of all things. I think it's uh, Amazon uh, on AWS. Um, I think it's probably alongside EC2, their oldest, most long-standing offering is S3, which is their blob storage, where you can store kind of arbitrary files on Amazon's cloud and they'll, they'll look after them for you. But there are a lot of tools um, in use or that are coming out to analyze data that's stored in these places. What the, the situation that we managed to get as an industry that we managed to get ourselves into a few years ago was we kind of got on board. Everybody got excited about, about Hadoop and the problems that Hadoop could solve. Not many people necessarily had those problems, 
but everybody got excited about it anyway. And so a lot of kind of prototype clusters were built, Hadoop clusters, and pe people were, were no, the best value out of them. Hadoop is kind of an interesting beast in that it is, it's a fantastic ecosystem of tools. It really is. It's great. But what it does is it puts your compute and storage next to the data. Mm -hmm. And that is brilliant. However, if you're not processing at any given moment, then you're only really using the storage of each node in the cluster, which means the compute is wasted. And one of the things that switching to the cloud allows us to do is if we store everything in blob storage, then uh, like S3 uh, on Amazon's AWS, then we can have just the storage and then the compute is sort of ephemeral and the compute can be kind of provisioned or got rid of kind of as and when it's needed. And I think that's, it's not a huge paradigm shift. I feel like it's a much smaller shift than that. But some of the kind of event-based architectures that we've been seeing a lot more of lately are, um, are much enhanced by, by, by this way of working. So given that observation, um, uh, moving towards more of a um, cloud-based big data analytics, um, what are a couple of good resources that people can learn more about um, data engineering? Cool. So one of the big things for, for me and for Mango in the past um, year or so is that uh, Mango became a partner of uh, Google for GCP. So we're kind of analytics, advanced analytics partner for, for GCP. So actually, I think uh, one of the really good things that people can do if they want to upskill in that space is to take Google's um, certified cloud data engineer exam. There's a, a learning track on Coursera that they can do, or Google sometimes do kind of in-person courses and things like that. Um, but it's a really interesting course. It's outside of my comfort zone because there's a bit more sort of um, what I would think of as data science, but I know a lot. The <laughs> data engineering is kind of not hugely well defined and it sort of differs a little bit from one organization to the next. Um, so, yeah, I did end up doing what I would consider to be more data science things a little bit on that course, but I learned an awful lot about the uh, really cool um, features and tools that Google have in place. And it, what, what I like about that platform, and one of the reasons that we decided to partner with them over anybody else, is that the, um, the ecosystem for data in particular is really, really well thought out. And the way that it's used really suits my, my kind of um, sort of DevOps background, if you like. You know, there's a lot of kind of infrastructure as code stuff that you can do and a lot of automation, things like that, that you can put in there that work really, really nicely. I see. Yeah, I'm actually a, a huge fan of Google Cloud Platform as well. They, um, they have a weekly podcast, you know, that details like some of the most released, like the, the newest, you know, um, solution in the G GCP ecosystem that, you know, people can, can, can um, be aware of. And then, you know, there's a lot of good um, discussion on, on, on the, the most cutting edge solution to solve. So, yeah, I uh, definitely going to you know, include the, um, the link to that Coursera uh, classes that you mentioned into the show notes so people can uh, take advantage of that. Um, this is more of a career-related question. Uh, so, for the people who want to make a transition from uh, an individual contributor to a manager or to a manager role, uh, what could be uh, your advice for them? Um, get good with people. I, I see a lot of people, a lot of uh, technical people, and I myself am, am guilty of this from time to time, who who aren't necessarily that great at 
talking to people who aren't, you know, good at communicating, aren't necessarily good at getting their point across. Um, but being able to, to kind of communicate, I think, is really key. And to be honest, that is a skill which I always look for in, in a really strong data scientist as well. You know, so um, often a data scientist is, if, if they're good and if they've got some good experience, they're often kind of halfway there anyway. Because having the ability to communicate effectively is really kind of uh, central to, to what the work that they need to do. You know, if they're producing insights and predictions and reports and things like that, those reports need to be communicated, whether it's written communication, verbal communication, whatever it may be, um, to to whoever the stakeholders are. Mm -hmm. and, and that kind of good communication is, is really, really key for me and really key for, for the team at Mango as well. I see, yeah. And the ability to, to derive insights and, and communicate the business value is always going to be critical no matter um, what organi organization that you're involved with. Um, exactly. Exactly. Uh, how could you describe the data uh, data science ecosystem in the UK? Wow, it's really strong. It's it's really uh, kind of broad, um, broad ecosystem. There there are a lot of people doing a lot of different things all over the all over the country and, and Europe generally. I mean, we. Uh, as a <laughs> as a continent often looks to the US for for kind of inspiration you know a lot of stuff that uh, that we love comes out of the US so you know GCPs obviously Google based in the US Amazon based in the US uh, Microsoft Azure based in the US so you know we're often looking in that direction but the I see people doing really really exciting cool things all the time um, you know R Python um, or whatever it may be, across across all of Europe, in um, in finance and pharmaceuticals, and you know all of the all of the sectors. It's um it's an exciting time to be in the industry. I think. Mm -hmm. Um. So at, at this part of our conversation, I'm gonna move towards the um, closing segment, in which I'm gonna ask you a couple, three basically three rapid fire questions where you can. Give some um, tactical advice, you know, for people to, to learn more about that topic. Okay. So uh, the first one is that what are some of the companies that are doing uh, exceptional data engineering work that you admire? Um, in terms of data engineering, there's a, a company in the UK. It might be a US company, actually. I'm not sure. But um, there's a company, there's a couple of guys I know work for a company in London called Huddle, which is H-U-D-L, um, and they're doing kind of event-based, um, event-based data engineering work on uh, on Amazon. So they're doing some really cool stuff. But then, as well as that, um, I always think that our studio mm. are doing fantastic work. You know, the the people that they've got working for them and the products that they release. You know, most of the stuff that they do is is completely free and open source and that's amazing. Um, the the mission of that company is to kind of empower um, the world to work on, on data projects. And you know, there's for for me there's not much better that you could you could ask for for that. They as I say, most of their stuff is given away for free, and then um, they have some commercial products which obviously support the investment in the free stuff, um, which is a really nice business model. It's always really nice to see see the work that they do next. Got a really smart team. The second question is that what is one book that you could recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset? Um, the one book for me is always going to be the R for Data Science book by uh, Hadley Wickham and Garrett Grolleman. It's a really, really fine introduction to um, to R, to a group of packages referred to as the Tidyverse, but also to analytics. So it doesn't assume too much, which is really nice for me, not having that kind of maths and stats background. Um, it doesn't assume that you know too much already and it just really helps you dive straight in and start doing really strong data analysis work pretty much from the outset. And the last question is that 
imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the aspiring data engineers on Twitter. Uh, what would you tweet about? Um, I would tell them to pick up their computers and get coding. But make sure that you blog about it, make sure about it on Twitter or whatever, and follow some people in that space. Um, kind of be public with, with your work, even when you're learning. You know, if you can do um, stuff that is perhaps suboptimal, but in any good community, you should be kind of supported in that work, you know. And if you do something that is suboptimal, hopefully somebody will point that out and give you a, a chance to to improve and a chance to learn. Mm -hmm. um, you could also dive in and start helping other people on open source projects and things like that. That's a great way to, to help. It can be really intimidating to, to start and, and join on stuff like that. But even just helping out with documentation for, for some of these tools is a really, really great way to get involved. I see. Yeah, and and does necessarily need ethical ability first start. So, uh, Mark, thanks a lot, you know, for spending this uh, last hour talking to me. Uh, I uh, appreciate you sharing some of the experience that you gained from, uh, you know, back in the day from a couple of your first job until now. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, our audience has been learning a lot on, you know, data engineering, which is um, a less, you know, sexy part of data science, but, but an, an extremely critical part that uh, empower most of the data solution in the industry. And then I included all of your resources as well, right? Uh, some of the advice that you uh, provided in the show notes. Uh, uh, so, yeah, Mark, thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting me on, James. Appreciate it. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of DataCast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.